future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Monday, January 16th, 2023. It is MLK Day, everyone. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Out to Coop Live. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. At Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards and across the country. You can join us also at the end of the week for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state national politics. You can also check out our once or twice monthly The Wednesday Show with Cyril Michaleko, the editor-in-chief of the Bucks County Beacon. And he joins me on occasion to drill down into Bucks County, Pennsylvania international politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. And you can help out the show right now by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. For more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream, 9 p.m. Eastern, on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your streams. And subscribe to his podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Go to therigsmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. The amazing PA women stirring their political cauldron behind this podcast, Rocky House. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Attention all you gamers out there. The Game In, with two N's. The Game In is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, Loads of collectibles, action figures, and Funko Pops. Walls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts for the goodies in the report card. Can't beat it. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game In. That's with two N's. That's at the Game In on Twitter. Got a question about a game? Looking for something hard to get? Shoot them a message and drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. Special shout out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Dayman. That's with two N's, at Song of Dayman on Twitter. And with school board elections coming up this year, we cannot let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, unmasking the toxic organizations, and injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. That's ragingchicken.levelfield.net. And tonight's show, well got a bit we've got an open show tonight kind of curious about what's on your all mind um we uh had some possibilities uh of having someone on tonight uh having a guest so you didn't have to listen to just me yammer on about stuff um but none of that could quite work out it's a little tough it's uh you know it's mlk days lots of stuff that's going on um it's a long weekend 
Um, <clears throat> colleges are starting to get back up and running. Uh, lots of stuff that's kind of happening here, kind of juggling some things that just didn't kind of pan out. So, uh, But I just didn't want to let tonight go by um, without any kind of show whatsoever. Um, and as you may have heard, oh, excuse me, <clears throat> as you may have heard in the uh, beginning of the show, I mean, I'm a little bit not feeling 100% today. Um, <clears throat> just wiped out more than anything else, to be honest with you. Um, and, uh, you know, today was uh, my kids head off from school, obviously. It's MLK Day. So I was home with my kids today and my niece was here, um, <clears throat> which was good. Um, spent a lot of time working on my semester prep and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, it was good. I don't know. I, I kind of, you know, it's funny because I feel like I'm in a pretty good kind of, you know, productivity mode right now um, when it comes to um, my, you know, coursework and all that stuff that I'm getting ready for. Wow. I'm um, getting re ready for kind of teaching this semester. Um, <clears throat> but got a little trepidation about beginning the year, and I'm not quite entirely sure what that's about. Um, <clears throat> had some, you know, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. It was a little kind of like I uh, had this kind of – the sense that I mean, there's this class I'm teaching in um, the spring is uh, I'm teaching four classes, but the one class that I worked on uh, for most of the day today, um, finishing up and putting finishing touches on is a class. Um, it's called Rhetoric, Democracy, Advocacy. And um, without going into all the kind of the drama that is uh, working at Kutztown University, um, <clears throat> it felt good. I haven't taught this class in a, in a few years and not because I didn't want to teach it, but because it's, uh, you know, don't always get the opportunity to teach uh, what I'm trained to do, right? Um, and Or what I'm trained to do, where my interests are, where my research lies. Um, I end up teaching a lot of, you know, um, service classes for kind of other programs or for the rest of the university. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I usually get to teach one class uh, per semester. That's kind of in my ballpark. Um, last semester, it's been a kind of a cool year this year because I got to teach activist writing media last semester, which you probably heard me talk about on the show before. And I got to teach, uh, I'm teaching in the spring, rhetoric, democracy, advocacy. And it's, uh, it seems like a really important time for this class, at least for me in terms of how I'm thinking about what are the kinds of things that we need to be teaching, you know? <laughs> um, <clears throat> what is the purpose of higher education? What is the the goal that we're after here? And for those of you who've, um, <clears throat> who've listened to the show for a while, I mean, I've probably talked about versions of this in, in the past, but, you know, for me, Education, education was always a promise, right? It was always a hope. And, <clears throat> you know, I, you know, I, I, I grew up without a whole lot, right? You know, I grew up, you know, <clears throat> my earliest memories are <clears throat> of, you know, like food stamps and the shames of poverty and, uh, <clears throat> you know, my sister who's got a mental disability and, you know, all that kind of entails is kind of a kid trying to grow up and making, you know, making sense of the world and dealing with the cruelty of other people. Um, 
and education was kind of one of these places where I always, you know, and I found kind of particular kinds of hope. And of course, when I was coming up through the education system was just right at this time when, you know, you had, I remember like the, my first, the first presidential election, I remember very clearly was when I was in sixth grade. <clears throat> and that was um, Ronald Reagan versus Jimmy Carter. And I can remember the intense discussions that we actually had in our class. And, you know, again, we were 12 years old. I mean, these, these discussions were as much reflective of what we heard from our parents or kind of what we throw in the world around than, than anything else. And, and I remember having these disagreements with friends and, you know, I was, I, I was, you know, supporting Carter and um, all, there was a lot, but I remember the energy that um, so many people had around Ronald Reagan, which is really interesting. And it, re, you know, harkens back, you know, to some of, uh, you know, this obsession people have with, with Donald Trump now, although it's, you know, I mean, it's much crueler and, and, and explicit and overt than it now, although arguably, <clears throat> not very different from what Reagan brought. Um, but anyways, <clears throat> you know, it was, so that's right in 1980s is there. So when I was kind of, you know, going into middle school into uh, high school, um, you know, I literally, literally watched my town, like, you know, fall into devastation, right? Because once Reagan came into power, that's when we saw the direct attacks upon labor unions, of course, famously with the PATCO strike, the air traffic controller strike, um, right when he came into office. <clears throat> it was the beginning of the, um, the, the kind of outsourcing of labor, of shifting um, factories to overseas. And of course, that just ramped up in the 90s. <clears throat> but, you know, so watching all these really solid industrial jobs that um, that really made my hometown of Utica run, you know, from cutlery factories to, you know, clothing manufacturers, textile works, uh, a GE plant. Um, uh, you know, there's this one strip, it's called the arterial, the North Star arterial. And um, as you kind of drive alongside there, there's like, you know, this, uh, <clears throat> there's one church there, but it was just factory after factory after factory after factory, right? Or, you know, um, and all those things shut down. You know, um, as I was growing up. And so, you know, and this is, you know, again, this story is not unique to me. I remember the first time that I came to Pennsylvania, my parents and I were, uh, this is when my mom got remarried. So my mom, my stepdad, my sister and I were going down to uh, Virginia Beach and we stopped in uh, Allentown because, <clears throat> you know, we're pulling this little pop up trailer behind us. We're, um, had a campsite down in Virginia Beach. And of course, the car that we're driving broke down uh, right outside Allentown. So we had to stay overnight in Allentown. And um, I remember loving Allentown at that point. Um, it reminded me a lot of my hometown, to be honest with you. And it, it's not kind of, uh, well, it's not ironic, but it makes a lot of sense about why when I did eventually find my way to Pennsylvania and find my way to uh, uh, Kutztown University, the Allentown is where I chose to live. It's like reminded me a lot of the, even the history of my, of my own town, this kind of industrial town, this industrial region. Um, that had been devastated by these kind of neoliberal trade policies and um, and so much else. But so anyways, <clears throat> all that kind of stuff has been going through my mind and, uh, you know, kind of being in this, this part where you're seeing the the 
the devastation of kind of, you know, the New Deal promise and that the ongoing battles against we're doing and the kind of the long slog of trying to do something about it. Right. I mean, the long slog of trying to push back. And um, I, I hate kind of talking about this as, as a function of age, right? Because, you know, frankly, there's a lot of young folks today who kind of see things a lot more clearly than I certainly did when I was a kid. Um, but there's something to be said for that lived history and that experience of, you know, that time that just, you know, happens to randomly correspond with, you know, my time on this big rock, you know, which is the, the living in the kind of this neoliberal mode, like, you know, you know, watching the devastations of industrial base, watching the kind of like celebration of the kind of uh, the young professional through the Clinton administration, the abandonment of the kind of the working class and labor, the shifting of working class from kind of Democrats to Republicans, um, <clears throat> sections of the working class, we should say. Um, <clears throat> we could see the disenfranchisement of, uh, of, of people, the rolling back of gains during the civil rights movement. Um, um, and and kind of coming to where we are now, and there's there's so much to, to kind of remember to be to to honor right now the work that has gone in, the movements that have gone in. But um, I I have to say is I don't think I've ever felt that our kind of limited democracy that we have in this country um, has been in more peril. And so I was thinking a lot about that as I was planning for teaching this class, Rhetoric, Democracy, Advocacy. Um, and I changed up a lot of what I, what I did for this class, right? Because what I was trying, very much trying to do is say, well, what are some of the key questions? So I'm ended up, I'll just tell you a little bit about what kind of what we're doing here is I'm, I've got this book. I talked a little bit about this, I think, either last week or on Friday. So I've got this book called Emergent Publics. An essay on social movements and democracy by Ian Angus that we're going to take a look at. We're going to be looking at uh, demagoguery and democracy by Patricia Roberts um, Roberts Miller. Um, looking at that democracy on tyranny by uh, Timothy Snyder, Twenty Lessons from the Twentieth Century, um, and a book that I just kind of happen to you know just love this book on really rhetorics. I actually have a have an article on this one on really rhetorics. Um, is one edited by Jonathan Alexander, Susan Jarrett, and Nancy Welsh. Um, it's a great book. And and part of what we're doing in this class is we're going to, you know, looking at, well, first of all, what is it that um, we mean when we talk about democracy? If you remember when I had Garen McGarrion on um, uh, a few weeks back, um, that was his essential question. What do we mean by democracy, right? What is it that, that we want? I mean, are we... Democracy is ruled by the people, right? And that's what I really like about this Ian Angus book, right? Because it talks about rule by the people is not simply like the instant, the formal institutional arrangements of voting every kind of like every cycle and mechanics and registration to vote and all these kind of things that we ended up having to really do hand to hand combat on these days. But we're also talking about the kind of the broader, say, cultural infrastructure um, that supports 
any kind of democratic culture. And education is one of those, right? Um, it's one of those spaces where we have an opportunity to make a decision about what our future looks like, right? And, you know, Ian Angus also makes this really important distinction, I think, between <clears throat> having actual spaces where we get to deliberate over and deliberate and make decisions and impact decisions um, that affect us, right? Um, and what that means is not simply being able to choose from two predetermined choices that somebody else decides about, Right. But be able to decide what's important from the get go. Right. And I'm always remembering I always remember back to when. Um, debates around kind of Medicare for all and the Bernie Sanders campaign. Right. Um, and I remember Chris Hayes did this thing. That I always thought was just so excellent, and I really wish he would do more of this stuff. But talked about the the real question about whether or not we're going to be able to sustain democracy because obviously when you start talking about really you know again the United States of America is not a democracy it's a republic right it's a representational democracy if you want to use those terms in other ways right so I mean there's all those qualifications but that's not that's not the important thing the important thing is like from where do decisions originate and one of the things that Hayes did was to say, look, there's a real problem when the gap between what people want and what people find good um, and what is seen as plausible politics or what legislators, what representatives um, will pass. When that gap is really wide between what people want and what um, what is being passed and the laws that we get, that becomes too wide. That's a, that's a crisis of democracy in and of itself. And to use the example of Medicare for all, right? If you looked at at that particular point, the approval rating, right, about the or, or or maybe it was the maybe it was a Medicare for all, maybe it was even the public option. Maybe this was actually during Obama. That might have been that might have been when it was. Um, might have been like 2011 or something like this. So it was a while back. Wow, that's like 2012. That is a while back. Um, might have been yeah, might have been during the Obama administration. Um, and he talked about, say, you look at the polling for, say, a public option or kind of Medicare for all, and it was like at 75, 78%. And he said, he's like, basically said, look, nothing polls at 75, 78%. Nothing has that kind of support. <laughs> or does it? Or, or what does? Oh, yeah, taxing the rich. That's another one, <laughs> right? Increasing the taxation on the rich to pay for the kind of things that we want. That's another one that's a big thing. But everything in the politics, everything in the political realm, the official democracy, the formal democracy, the institutionalized democracy, what, was, what mattered to those people who rule in Washington was so far from what people actually wanted. And that that's a real problem and if like if we know it's like one of our biggest problems that we're facing in our lives is that fact we can't get access to you know to good medicare or medical medical coverage right or uh, you know we don't make wages that allow us to live 
our lives in any way kind of close to the kind of anywhere close to thriving, right? Right. That barely allows kind of the majority of people to even just pay their bills from 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 month to month. When you have that gap, there's a there's a problem. It's a big problem. And um, I want to say uh, Bartels is the is the guy Larry Lawrence Bartels. I think it was a around that same time, and I, this might have even been what Chris Hayes was getting at in some of that coverage at that point. Um, was they did a study, right? So it was a quantitative study um, that they started focusing on MSNBC for a little bit. You know what it was? It was Yes, it was. It was about 20, 2011, 2012, because it was in the wake of Occupy Wall Street, <laughs> right? Um, and so you think about it. It's like that's over a decade ago, and these alarms were being raised then, right? About the you know the 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 problem with our democratic system, quote unquote, democratic system. And Bartels, I hope I got that right. Um, they did this research, and it was the first quantitative study about, say, the influence of money and class on legislative outcomes. All right. And so they basically did this thing where they surveyed, you know, people from different parts of uh, um, different class strata. Right. So people in the top five percent, people in the top one percent, people in the middle, people kind of uh, kind of poor and uh, and kind of lower middle class, working class, you know, hopefully that kind of stuff. And they, they kind of did these broad surveys to find out what issues that were kind of important. And then they matched that to legislative outcomes, um, to the language, I think it was even like even the language that was being used to the priorities of, different, of specific legislatures. And what they found is that the working class and the poor didn't even register on the issues that were important to legislators. The issues that framed public debate, that framed legislative outcomes, that framed what even politicians would bring up in their campaigns were the concerns of maybe the top 40 percent, top 30 percent. And the ones at the very top, right, had complete disproportionate control over the kind of the political discourse. And so you couple that with the other stuff I was talking about with Chris Hayes brought up. It, that is, you know, that's a kind of quote unquote democracy in name only, barely even that. The only thing that's left at that point are those institutional formal institutional structures like elections and this stuff. We're no longer even kind of talking about kind of important issues. And I think that that is one of the reasons why the Bernie Sanders campaign was so important because it changed for a moment or 
not even change, provided an opening to see another world, right? You know, back in uh, the global justice movement in the early 2000s, right? That was the phrase, like, another world is possible. And it was that possibility that kind of, you know, drove so many people. And we saw the impacts of that, right? I mean, in the follow-up for Bernie Sanders' campaign, we saw young activists who worked on Bernie Sanders' campaign, who were energized by, by Bernie Sanders' campaign, continue in politics and get elected. That's the squad, right? And the squad comes out in that week. And again, I'm not just trying to say it's about Bernie Sanders, because like, it's about somebody running a campaign that was about people at its core. That wasn't just about team sports, right? It wasn't about blue or red. It was about that 75 to 78% of people who wanted a public option or wanted Medicare for all. It's about that 75% of people who have no problem taxing the rich. And you can call that what you want, you know, but that's like at its core, if you want to be a democracy worth your name, right? At some point, there's got to be a correspondence between the issues that are important to everyday people and what is reflected in terms of the legislation and the laws and the programs that are enacted from the government. Right? So that's kind of where we're at. You know, it just got me kind of thinking a lot about this stuff is like, you know, I'm really curious when we get into this, when we get into this class, right? When we start talking about, you know, democracy and 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 demagoguery, or when we're talking about the what it actually means to be part in a democratic culture, what it means to be a citizen as opposed to a subject or strictly a subject. And the other thing I like really like about Ian Angus, I'm going to see if I can find it real quick, is Ian Angus, when he talks about citizenship, right? Because, you know, I mean, again, we, the way that we tend to talk about things like citizenship are around like who has a legal right to be a citizen, right? We talk about wanting to extend citizenship. We want to talk about these things and all of that stuff is absolutely critical, right? I mean, let's be, let's be clear. Is like, you know, trying to kind of talk about who is, gets to be included in terms of the, the you know, the, the, the formal process of a nation state. That's important, right? And when we exclude citizenship people from citizenship, it's generally as a way of kind of maintaining inequity and exploitation, right? I mean, that's kind of, you know, the history of that. But this is what he says, like, so when people engage in public discussion in order to make decisions concerning their common life, they become, in the real sense of the word, citizens. In earlier times, all important decisions were taken by a king. The people were merely subjects. That is to say, they were subject to the law of the land as decided upon by the monarch. But with the emergence of democracy, the people are not only subject to the law, they also have the power to deliberate and decide what the law will be. Citizens have this double role. They both originate the law and are subject to it. Whereas in non-democratic political forms, there are not citizens, but only subjects. 
In this way, democracy brings into being a new relationship between people who are engaged in a common activity as citizens. Right? And so thinking about citizenship is kind of like taking part in deliberating over our future, right? Um, and if anybody has been part of, well, that's the beauty of what we see with our, you know, these current organizing efforts that are going on. To try to take back school boards, to try to kind of like, you know, flip state houses and so on. And I think about, you know, I go back to something I was talking a little bit about um, last week that I've talked about kind of extensively on the show. When do we make the arguments for what we want? I think that's one of the things when I was in high school, what drew me to punk, punk rock. And, and not just punk rock, but the particular punk rock scene that I was part of, right? Because, you know, any kind of scene is going to have its all different varieties and these, you know, who's a goth and who's a hardcore and who's a blah, 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 blah. What mattered to me is that there were people who thought a different world was possible. And the, the music itself was, yes, it was, it was a critique especially the political punk that I was kind of listened to and the people that I knew were around with, it was a critique of the existing system, right? The dress and all this kind of stuff was a rejection of kind of certain kind of mortal codes. But more important to the people that I was involved with, you start thinking about, well, how might we do something different? We had an, we had an imagination that seemed lacking at that time. And, you know, again, in my world as a, you know, as a teenager, But it was reflected everywhere, right? I mean, it was reflected in terms of like the discipline that you experience in your everyday life once you kind of start talking about well, the better world is possible. Remember, like, for example, Hillary Clinton, when, you know, when, Bert, when she's running against Bernie Sanders or Bernie Sanders is talking about Medicare for all and he's talking all this, talking about kind of, you know, free public uh, uh, higher education when he was talking about, you know, taxing the rich. And, finally, and, and Hillary Clinton at one point... <laughs> It basically says he's, you know, promising everybody a pony. <laughs> you can't get a pony. And it's like that, you know, that trying to explain to people at the time how cutting that was. It was like a reinforcement of everything. So for someone like me who grew up the way I did, the first movie that was basically saying, screw you. Stay in your place. Don't want anything other than what we give you. And I can't tell you how many times I had heard that in my life. And like, yeah, look, I grew up and I was poor when I was young. Right. When I grew up in that kind of context and things like this. But, you know, I'm still a white guy. Right. Grew up in a kind of, you know working class slash middle class, you know, little neighborhood in Utica, New York. So, I mean, my experience, I mean, that's just like a little window into what, you know, 
people of color face on a daily base. What Native Americans have faced for, you know, what, centuries. What women experience, you know, especially in the wake of kind of watching their rights being stripped away. I mean, all this stuff. So, I mean, like, I'm not trying to say like, oh, I understand it all. I, you know, again, I just have my little window into this stuff. But that experience has always stayed with me. And that, that kind of, that idea of the contrast we say like, oh, what? Oh, yeah, it, w- it would be nice if everybody could have a pony, but everybody can't have a pony. You can't have a pony. Because we live in the real world, and in the real world, nobody gets a pony except the rich. As opposed to what Bernie Sanders was saying, was like, I can see the horizon. You know, on this day, right, on MLK Day, when he says, like, I might not get there with you. (laughs) But I can see the horizon. It's last speech. If we don't have a horizon and we can't articulate a horizon and we don't have spaces where we practice articulating our horizon, articulating what we want, a vision of another future, a vision of different possibilities, then we're constantly going to be defending crumbs. You know, that's kind of what's been going through my mind as I was kind of preparing for this class. And I was thinking about, you know, I do these, I do this all the time to myself, right? I do these kind of little thought experiments, right? I say, like, okay, what would it look like in a school board, right? What were some of the kind of things? What do it mean to kind of like define a horizon? What would it mean to kind of do this? And like, and I remember during the uh, the elections in. Um, Twenty twenty one, I guess it was right. Twenty twenty one, when when uh, you had these kind of Democratic consultants were telling school board candidates, Democratic school board candidates, um, to ignore these kind of right wings, you know, conspiracy theories around CRT and anti masking, instead trying to talk about kind of practical matters and blah 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 blah. Right, and school board candidate or school board candidate kind of talk about afterwards like how wrong that was, what awful advice that was. And by the time they were able to kind of realize they needed to respond, it was too late. But imagine if, like, instead of the argument saying, well, no, we're not teaching CRT, what if the argument was kind of saying, no, you know what? We need CRT. I wish we had CRT, but DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, this is not CRT, but it is a step in the direction of saying that we want to live in a multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy. That we believe that our kids should be included. And we believe that there are are reasons why, even if we're unconscious about them. That keeps those structures of oppression going. So let's take stock. Let's place hope in the future of our children. Let's provide them with an educational environment that allows them to kind of like grasp those critical skills and understanding of history and all of its complexities so they can do better. We can take a step in that direction so our kids can take a leap. Right? Because it comes like a, I read stuff, right? You know, I, I remember they were all freaking out about that, you know, that book, White Fragility, right? 
they're all kind of freaking out about, you know, uh, you know, about these books that are talking about kind of white privilege and all this kind of stuff. And the thing is, I got to say, you know, I read those things and I don't feel assaulted by them. I feel like I'm learning. And I think I recognize my privilege in some of those things. And I don't read that stuff and walk away feeling guilty. I walk away, it feels like a gift, like I could do better. You know, I, and, and isn't that what education is supposed to be about, right? And instead, you know, I, I was talking to, you know, my kids about this and my son in particular, he's going to high school next year. And like, <laughs> you know, they're, they're cutting social studies, Right. They're cutting uh, uh, social. Studies. They're cutting health classes. Right. Um, they're, you know, for all this stuff. And when you watch the school board meetings at Penridge, right there, you know, you have these people. These school board members who are saying that, well, we need to make sure that they have room for blacks, Y and Z. And then somebody I, I wish I could remember who it was off the top of my head, but somebody kind of wrote about this right or was interviewed about this for one of the articles I want to say it's an article from Emily Rizzo uh, or might have been Jenny Stevens I'm not sure um, who um, which article I'm thinking about but they were you know talking to some some of the parents here and some of the teachers and they quoted them as saying like look you want to cut these classes like half our students or even in some cases more than half of the students their senior year are only attending class only attending school for a couple hours a day, the vast majority of them have early dismissal, late arrival. So it's like, wait a minute, really? And then so and then and then my son this week is telling me about this. Yeah, like, OK, I want to make sure because you can actually choose study hall. Right. So if you get these other courses out of the way early, you can just choose study hall. So you've got all this free time in your senior year and even junior year. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, if all these people are choosing study hall, are choosing early dismissal, are choosing late arrival, that suggests to me, I don't know about you, but there's a whole lot of time in a school day. So, like, what's the, I don't even know the mentality. And then when they talk about, all they talk about on these school board meetings is about how we're training our kids for jobs. And I'm like, this is freaking high school. When you're preparing kids for the future and you're basically tracking them into kind of like a version of what their future should be at this point, man, what the hell are you, what, what has happened? You're training them to think about themselves as cogs in a machine. You're not training with the literacies that are literacy skills that are necessary to participate as full democratic citizens in this culture. To help define their own futures, not just for themselves, their little individual selves, 
but the kind of world they want to build and want to lead for their own kids. They've got ideas about where they want the world to go. What would look, how would that be better? And instead, you've got these school board members and you've got these kind of radical extremists and these kind of freaking billionaires with nothing better to do with their money than dump it in to trying to rewind the clock back to some fiction of 1950s white America <laughs> where everybody got along and said, yes, ma'am, no, sir. I mean, it's just like, it's crazy. And what, what always gets me is that you know, yes, this is this happening a kind of in a rural area. Like, I mean, you know, it's a fairly rural, rural area, small town America. But you know what? I you you look around here, and how many people have how many families have lost their farms because it was no longer viable to competing with these kind of gigantic factory farms out in the Midwest someplace. How many small businesses were crushed? by the policies of kind of, of, of Reagan and the Republicans. How many people have lost grandparents and people in their lives because they couldn't get adequate medical care? But then you've got the constant drumbeat of Fox News and this right-wing kind of media infrastructure basically directing them toward hate, not toward possibility. Stoking racism as a way to keep them angry, even as they go to young, they go to early deaths. Telling them lies about like liberals trying to kind of stifle them by making them wear masks as their family members are dying in the hospitals of COVID during that first wave. You know, I mean, it's like, I feel so much for the the devastation, this mentality that we have right now is, is kind of just reeking in our culture. You know, and I worry for my kids. And as much, you know, look, I mean, I mean, you've, you've heard me say it enough, right? I mean, we're certainly putting in our, are going to be putting in our efforts and our money in terms of trying to kind of win back some of these school board seats. But it's not just the election, right? I mean, there's. it's not just having someone on the school board. It's the rot in our culture. You know, I can't tell you how many times, you know, and again, I understand, look, I mean, schools do this stuff because they think they're being helpful. Right? They're trying to help the kids out. And so, like, I, I, I don't know if it's every Friday, but it's like every other Friday. But a significant amount of time goes to have them taking these kind of standardized kind of like career placement tests on Fridays. I mean, you're in freaking middle school. And you're getting the pressure to decide now what you're going to be in your future. Like I remember in third grade, my third grade, we had to answer a question like this. So, you know, your teacher comes up, says, hey, 
you know, what do you think about? What do you like? What are you kind of involved in? What are some interesting? What do you think you want to be when you grow up? Right. And I remember my answer was a UFO investigator. <laughs> there was this show like I, I used to watch, I used to love it. it was like fascinating with UFOs and all that kind of possibilities and things like that. A UFO investigator. I remember my teacher, Mrs. Beatty, who I loved, just like kind of laughed. Just like, oh, yeah, why? And I, you know, explained to her that it was like fascinating and blah, blah, blah. All that kind of stuff. But you think about that and like, you know, and she laughed and she's like, yeah. and there was like a red flag. Oh, my God, this kid's going to be a failure. No, it was like, that's cool. That's where the kids, you know, how, you know, how he's thinking about it. It's like, it's so interesting to learn that the kids like think, you know, that all that kind of stuff. It wasn't pressure. It was just kind of like trying to have a conversation with you. And now it's like, you know, again, this is, you know, we've had to talk to our kids about this, you know, since they were young is like, I, I like, I remember like in, 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 in grade school, right. When they were in elementary, like in first and second grade, these parents who I barely even knew coming up and talking about how their kids, oh, my kids is the kind of like, you know, oh, oh, oh. my kids in the advanced stuff. My kids in the kind of like, blah, blah, blah. What's your kid? Oh my God. Your kid is not in the, you know, the gifted program. Oh my God. You got to be in the gifted program. got to be in the gifted program. Oh, these kids are so smart. You got to blah, blah. And I'm like, holy shit. The pressure to kind of like, you know, and I'm sitting there, look, I mean, thank God that, you know, I've had friends who had kids long before I did, that I was a little bit older when I had kids. I don't know if a presence of a mind that I wasn't kind of wrapped up in all that nonsense. Wrapped up in kind of like telling my kid and kind of encourage my kid to think about the world as a rat race where they got to go out and get theirs. That they got to do all this kind of, you know, all this kind of, they, if they're not gifted, then oh, they're not good, right? You know, I mean, all this kind of stuff. I mean, Pennsylvania is bad enough. It's got a tracking system, you know, it tracks students into different tracks that are younger age and they know about it. Right. But look, like, you know, my kids, they do great in school. Right. And I'm so glad I even said this to him like like last week. It's like I'm so glad that they're not overly obsessed with their, their grades or you know, doing all the correct things or making sure that they've already picked their college. I mean, my daughter just entered entered middle school. She's in sixth grade. And she came home last week talking about how like, holy, she's like, oh, I don't know how all these kids, because we have to, we have to talk about which college we want to go to. And I was like, I don't know how all these kids are already talking about, they know which college they're going to go to and what they're going to major. And I'm like, holy crap, are you serious? And, and, and nothing about that is for the right reason, right? I mean, nothing about that is about the learning, like the access to knowledge, the access to critical thinking. It's only about one's job and the fear of falling, as Barbara Ehrenreich put it years ago. The fear that if you do not get on the stick now, then you are going to fall down the class ladder. I mean, that's a... That's something else, you know, that's something else. So the hope for me, I mean, the pat answer is like, you know, social movements and all the organized stuff like that. But, you know, as I was thinking about 
little things. I don't know what's got me so focused on this so late lately. I don't know, but it, you know, it's the uh, trying to focus on some things that are life giving. You know what I mean? And things about you know. What are the kinds of things that we can do to help build that, say, democratic or kind of like that culture? In addition to kind of taking power back from the nut jobs, right? I mean, seriously. I don't know. It's a good question. Good question. If you got anything on your mind tonight, just kind of, you know, let me know what's on your mind. I'd be curious what other people are <clears throat> thinking about. <clears throat> I want to give a couple plugs uh, over here. Um, now, on Friday, we talked a lot about um, kind of the school board stuff. I encourage you to head on over to the Bucks County Beacon. Uh, check out Cyril Michaleko's piece. The Central Bucks School District will actually host town halls with teachers about classroom censorship policy, but after it already passed. <laughs> Too little too late. Why weren't teacher and staff feedback elicited and prioritized during the crafting of the policy? Great question. Well, Cyril's got a great piece about that over in the Bucks County Beacon. Um, do check that out. There's also an excellent piece um, by Hajar Yazdiha. Yazdiha. Um, this is in the uh, USC uh, Dornsife. I don't know if I got that word right. USC Dornsife College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. This is a, uh, a special to the Beacon, uh, originally coming out of um, from the conversation. It's a great piece that's called um, How the Distortion of Martin Luther King Jr.'s Words Stokes Racial Division Within American Society. And it says, the use of King's words, especially by right-wing conservatives, are too often attempts to weaponize his memory against the multicultural democracy of which King, King could only dream. It's an excellent piece and an excellent kind of reminder to have out there. Um, I'll give you a little piece of it um, kind of from the middle. It's like a sanitized MLK. As every Martin Luther King Jr. Day nears on the third Monday of January, politicians across the political spectrum, including those opposed to establishing a national holiday in 1983, issue their heartfelt dedications to King or quote him in their own speeches. Yet January is also a month that commemorates a darker, more recent memory of the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol by right-wing extremists. The two issues... Misuses, misuses of King's memory and the January 6th attacks may seem like unrelated phenomena. Yet, in my book, The Struggle for, King, for, for the, people, the People's King, How Politics Transform the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement, I show there is a direct line from distortions of King's words and legacy to right-wing attacks on multicultural democracy and contemporary politics. The misuses of King are not accidental. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, a sanitized version of King was part of a conservative political strategy for swaying white moderates to support President Ronald Reagan's re-election by making King's birthday a national holiday. Even after Reagan finally signed the, King's, uh, the King holiday into law in 1983, he would write letters of assurance um, to angry political allies that only a selective version of King would be commemorated. That version was free of not only the racial politics that shaped the civil rights movement, 
but also of the vision of a systemic change that King envisioned. In addition, Reagan's version left out the views that King held against the Vietnam War. Instead, the GOP's sanitized version only comprises King's vision of a colorblind society at the expense of the deep systemic change that King believed was needed to achieve a society in which character was more important than race. Right? That's just a little clip of it. It's a, it's a great piece. I just hope that gives you a sense of how she's coming at this or, or, or he's coming. I think it's just she, right? Um, uh, of how they're coming at this and um, it's just a really super piece about breaking down um, kind of this kind of misuse and it seems appropriate to be pushing that out today um, on MLK Day right here um, there's also a great piece in today's beacon uh, from Kadita Kenner Kadita Kenner of course um, uh, we've had her on this show before um, she is the uh, CEO of the New Pennsylvania project um, and this is uh, her keynote address on voting rights at the 40, the 30, 34th annual Dr. King commemoration event. Um, this was held uh, yesterday in Media, Pennsylvania. Um, it's a it's again an excellent piece. Um, give a sense of kind of the importance of this. So you know, kudos to the Beacon once again for um, bringing forth voices um, to the pages of uh, the Bucks County Beacon. Um, that are reminding us of the real story, right? Of, and not that sanitized version. Um, so, yeah. Anyways, I'm going to make this a, a shorter version tonight. Like I said, like I said early on in the show, I'm not feeling 100% tonight, and I've got, yes, more doctor's appointments tomorrow. How great is that? Um, so they're going to figure out what the hell is going on. <laughs> so here you have it. But, uh, you know, I do want to say to everybody who's listening tonight and who's listening to the podcast and who supports the show and has been kind of like uh, getting the word out and all that kind of stuff. Um, thank you. Again, I think I've, I've been, you know, I've been in a very thoughtful and thankful mood. I think, you know, I really I'm just uh, I've been honored, really, by having so many people um, be part of this community. Yeah. Thank you, too, Emily. Thank you, too. Um, here's to uh, kind of moving forward. Here's to the work ahead. Um, here's to a uh, a good 2023 um, in whatever ways that we can make it so. Right. So I want to remind you, you can help support this show by heading on over to patreon.com slash RC Press. You can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Um, and... Uh, Make sure you head on over to the Bucks County Beacon, too, as well. Uh, you can actually support the Beacon. You head on over to their show, BucksCountyBeacon.com. Click on that little tab at the top of the page to support the Beacon. And, you know, you can become a kind of supporting member. You can give a one-time donation um, to support real critical news that's out there in the world. Um, anyways, that's going to do it for me tonight. Um, I'm going to kind of uh, make it an early night here, make sure my kids are tucked away and getting all set for the back-to-school tomorrow. Uh, I wish you and yours a kind of great evening, and uh, here's to it, everybody. So this is uh, Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. 
Uh, we'll see you back here on Friday, and hopefully we'll be uh, back on track with uh, some new guests coming up uh, beginning next Monday or next out. Let me try my people, cause.